You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. I want y'all to go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Last week, we saw that our salvation is more than a, a heavenly reservation on the Lord's upper deck, right, of his ship. The Bible is filled with amenities. These are promises, promises purchased by Jesus Christ. And in Galatians 4, which, which we're about to read the first seven verses of, Paul likens those who pass over these promises to being like a child, right? It's not a compliment. At Sunday school, they were uh, teaching how God created the heavens and earth and how he formed man from the dust. And a little Cason was in, particularly interested in the part where the teacher talked about how God took a rib from Adam's side. He pulled it from Adam's side and he made Adam a wife. Well, later that week, little Cason, he was sitting in bed and he had a stomach ache. He was moaning and groaning. His, his mom went into his room. I said, Cason, are you okay? What's wrong? He was, oh. I don't feel so good. I think I might be having a wife. <laughs> yeah, we laugh because the kids said it. You know, you men, y'all start acquainting pain to being married and you'll just have more pain. All right. Grown-ups aren't supposed to act like babies. All right. And Paul's about to explain this in Galatians chapter four. So let's read this together. Why don't we stand back up and get your calisthenics for the day in honor of God's word, of course. Galatians four, verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I want to ask Al Tyser to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. Now, thank you. It's on. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the uh, opportunity to be here today, Lord, and, and uh, the, just the freedom to worship your holy name, Lord, that's not something we should take for granted in this world we live in. Lord, I ask that you uh, open our hearts and minds and we hear the word that Pastor Wentz is going to teach us, Lord. And we know that's uh, the holy word from you, Lord. And we, I just ask that uh, we hear his word, Lord, and, and uh, practice the words we hear from, from, the, from you, Lord. That's the thing in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Y'all can be seated. Right now, I know that uh, when we read Scripture sometimes, uh, we feel pretty removed from its uh, culture and its application. But remember, this was a letter, Galatians was a letter written to multiple churches. We are a church, so we bear the application of it. And in Acts 14 and 15, it even mentions some of these churches Antioch, Deborah, Lystra, Iconium. All right, just to kind of review weeks ago what we talked about in setting up this passage. So historians say, though, that these people were known as Gauls. 
G-A-U-L. And they migrated from France and, and Brittany. All right. Caesar said of these folks, they are fickle in their resolve. These are the Galatians we're talking about. Not to be trusted. They are volatile, quick, eager, bold in a new thing, yet they lack perseverance. Their soldiers were brave in the first assault, but could not carry through to victory. They were eager to, eager to learn, but incapable of prolonged application. And of course, this area is basically the southern part of modern-day Turkey. This is, and Paul and Barnabas went back through there in AD 50, 53, about eight years after they planted these churches, in Acts chapter 16. You can read that there. According to Barnhouse, Donald Barnhouse, Galatians were Celtic. Their language was like that of the Welch and Celtic peoples. They're said to be of the same stock as modern-day Irish. So that means that some people in this room may actually be descended from the Galatians. John Phillips notices the following qualities in these people. Generous, inconsistent, impulsive, and quarrelsome. Well, see, now I know some of y'all are from Galatia. <laughs> My point is the Galatians and their thought processes aren't so different than ours, all right? And I believe Paul wanted to highlight the childish backpedaling of the Galatians faith and so he notes first the depth of their digression all right the way Paul speaks here reminds me of a mother pleading with her small child over the importance of not putting their hand on a hot stove you know she's trying to help them understand the severity of the thing right or a father who yells at his kid who broke away from him in a Walmart parking lot all right this is a big deal or a younger daughter arguing with her parents as they get animated and try to warn her of this bad relationship she's in. Paul's saying, you don't get it, right? You don't understand the misery that's awaiting you if you turn back from the grace of God. You don't see what a big deal this is. Faith isn't some add-on. It's not a bigger set of truck tires so that your truck will look cool, all right? It's, it's not a piece of jewelry that'll help you stand out. It's not an optional accessory. So Paul gives more of these modern day comparisons to drive home the severity of their digression. And the first of these is sonship to slavery. They're digressing. Galatians 4, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul's been talking about the will or the inheritance itself, right? The content of the will. But now he shifts to the heir who gets that will, right? Now the word Paul uses in verse two is translated guardians, but it's not the same word as guardian that we looked at last week. It's not the word pedagogue or, you know, teacher. It's a different word, a petropos. It, it means a steward or a manager of a household or of lands, an overseer or guardian of minors. And the word translated there as managers or economos, it means household manager. So while pedagogue may have kept a minor's behavior in check, the guardians or the managers kept the child's future inheritance in check. You can't get it yet. They, they did what the father commanded on wielding out that inheritance to that kid. Scholars say in Judaism, a boy passed from adolescence to manhood shortly after his 12th birthday, at which time he became a son of the law. But Paul wasn't speaking to Jews. He was speaking to Galatian Gentiles. So 
what's the deal there? Well, Greeks, uh, the Greek world had a similar concept, uh, except their minors came of age around 18 instead of 12. But my point is that both Jews and Gentiles had an emphasis where the minor would enter a stage of full responsibility as an adult. Y'all remember, uh, y'all may have heard of the teenage boy whose uh, girlfriend was breaking up with him. She said, I'm just tired of it. You're just way too immature. He stood up, looked her right in the face, stuck his chest down and said, you listen here, you're not going anywhere because the floor is made of lava. <laughs> y'all have seen the t-shirt that says my age is very inappropriate for my behavior. Some of y'all need that. Uh, the, the point is the coming of age of a son was, a th was common under Roman law. Now, fathers may have had discretion on uh, what age that happened, right? But in ancient Roman religion, they held a festival in March. It was called Liberalia, and it was where the kids were liberated. They, were, they went from a, being a minor into manhood. It even included changing clothes. They, they changed from their childhood clothes to manhood clothes. It's where we get the word uh, for toga, a man's toga, uh, not to be associated with toga parties. But uh, so it was a new robe. And, and this was the modern day cultural backdrop to everything Paul's about to say. And this was more than just the status like of, of you know, now I'm a man. Now I'm, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to feel respected. Right? This wasn't like a, a son or a daughter saying, well, may, now maybe mom and dad will listen to me more. Right? This was a shift from slavery to sonship. This was the right to possess the inheritance. The child already owned the land, right? Maybe physically even lived on the land or in, on the inheritance, right? But he was treated like a slave in regards to possessing that inheritance. This was an issue of property versus possession. Before a child comes of age, he has no legal rights because he's still a minor. And Paul uses that same word, translated child. He uses it over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, to highlight Christian immaturity. He says, he could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So Paul He's painting an, this incredibly detailed visual example of what the Galatians were doing. The Galatians, who were once children, with no legal access to their inheritance, though they already had been promised the inheritance, they finally were liberated. Liberalia, new clothes, new status, spiritual grown-ups, and then they forfeited their inheritance returned their new white robes, their togas, and they just, all they could do was slink back into slavery. Slaves to sons, back to slavery. And some of y'all are living in that slavery right now. You've come, you've come to know the Lord. You understood his grace. You understood you're not worthy of it. But then you, you've suddenly come to a place where you think you can earn his favor. And all it does is produce guilt because you can't. <laughs> bad guilt there is good guilt that leads us to the throne of grace <laughs> but the the bad guilt just leaves you wallowing in your own self-pity the galatians were forfeiting sonship for slavery secondly graduates for grade school galatians 4 verse 3 says in the same way we also when we were children 
were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now that phrase, elementary principles of the world, could be describing the law. I mean, um, you know, God's laws are the basic principles that govern the world. In the original language, elementary principles means uh, essential parts and it was often used to refer to the basics of teaching, like literally like the ABCs, Alpha, Beta, Gammas of Greek, you know, ABCs. You want to learn about God, you start with the basics, the law, the ABCs, the fundamentals. So the law was like grade school, elementary school. Hebrews 9 verse 8 says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are, oft, are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. No offense to reformer Luther, but Jesus was the great reformer. What's that mean, regulations to the body imposed? Well, it means that the law had all kinds of regulations. And if you didn't meet them, <laughs> no forgiveness, right? Unless you offered a sacrifice over and over every year. And the Judaizers had added to all those regulations. You know, you've heard the stories of how many hundreds and hundreds of extra rules there were. You had clean and unclean foods. You had food for sacrifices, drink offerings, ritual purification washings, and on and on and on. But regulations will never reach the conscience and grow us up from children to adults. The law couldn't get us a high enough score <laughs> to graduate. It's like we've all failed our SATs and ACTs. No scholarship, friend. You don't even get entrance in trying it that way. One scholar said those Judaizers had been telling the Galatians that the law was a graduate school for the gospel. But Paul insisted that being under the law was actually a sign of immaturity. For the Galatians to go back to the law would be like a Ph.D. repeating kindergarten to work on his alphabet. Alphabet. If they wanted to be spiritual grown-ups, they were going to have to advance beyond the law. I picture a teacher drawing a circle around the two things your kid missed on his, on his quiz. You know, they send the paper home in their backpack. Paul drew two circles. They traded sonship for slavery. They traded graduation for grade school. The depth of their digression was no small thing. It was bold and it was bad. But it wasn't over, all right? There, there was hope, all right? And that's my second point this morning, the hope of their progression. Paul is wise enough to include a simple gospel presentation in the middle of all this argument. And it's not like treating them like children. Oh, well, let me explain to you the gospel again. No, friend, listen. Don't you ever assume that your kids or your friends or your work associates know the content of the gospel? I've met plenty of people in America that grew up in Christian homes or in Christian atmospheres that have just never heard the gospel. Grown-ups. 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-olds who did not know, they could not articulate to you the gospel. And so don't ever take that for granted. Paul's not trying to baby them though. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So what's about to take place is really a miniature overview 
of the coming of Christ. That's what he's about to do right in the middle of all his arguments. You know, I know y'all knew this. I know y'all accepted this already, but let's just, let's just review this. Fullness, that word fullness, it's the Greek word pleroma. It means some total, even super abundance. Etymologically, it has a passive tense, meaning that which is or has already been filled, right? I love uh, the way Riken is a great commentator. He groups these two verses into six central teachings about the coming of Christ. And those are going to be our, our backbone for these next six things. Six essential teachings for, about the coming of Christ that Paul lays out here. First is the timing. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come. Now we've already seen that in Paul's day, a father could choose when that timing was, that that person could get the inheritance. And in many ways, our Heavenly Father determined when Christ would come to give all believers their inheritance. Okay, so we see that, right? But the fact is even undeniable in history. You know, we've, I mean, I think the fact that we have a B.C. and an A.D. kind of proved the impact of Jesus' coming, all right? He, Jesus understood it too, Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It wasn't just heavenly you know, it wasn't just a heavenly perfect moment for God to send his son. It was an earthly perfect moment. Remember, all roads led to Rome. And you, under the jurisdiction of Rome, people were safer, generally speaking. And so you had all these road systems set up for the gospel to go out. Not so different than our internet now. The gospel has reached into places that it's never been before and our transportation now as well. We've, I mean, every island, every place it has had opportunity to receive the gospel, even as I speak to you right now. Doesn't mean every people group has heard the gospel, but the gospel's on every has been attempted to every piece of land that exists on this planet. And that's it was a perfect timing for the for the word of God to go out. Also, there was the Hellenization of the Jews. The Hellenization of the Jews was basically where the Romans, the Greeks, forced their culture on other people. They made them learn uh, their language. They made them learn uh, their cultural ways. They even kind of dampened the Hebrew culture, which was maybe bad for the Hebrews, but good for the gospel so that the gospel could go out. But the biggest reason for the timing is that you had thousands and thousands of sinners who were waiting for the chains of their sin to be broken. They had had centuries of idol worship, pagan worship, and they, they, it couldn't give them the peace they wanted. It couldn't give them the forgiveness they needed. It couldn't give them hope and assurance of their salvation that only Jesus offers. They spent centuries trying to keep the law with nothing but constant failure. So at just the right time, God sent his son to make us sons and daughters. The timing was perfect. Second, the origin. Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent forth his son. Listen, the son was born of a woman, but he wasn't born by a woman. Jesus already existed. Jesus didn't get invented in the New Testament. Jesus wasn't invented at Christmas. Right? It's not the invention of Jesus. Oh, wow, we got another person showing up. No, he's always been. One scholar said, and by the way, he couldn't have been sent if he hadn't already existed. <laughs> That's the point, right? One scholar said he is the only begotten son of the father, the second person of the Trinity, who lived with his father in glory from eternity past. His sonship has always been, and his divine commission is evident in being sent to us. Well, third is the manner born of a woman. Now, 
His deity is seen in the fact that he was sent, but his humanity is seen in the fact that he was born of a woman. His commission may not have, his commission may have been heavenly, but his birth was incredibly ordinary, right? God became man. Let's let that sink in for a minute. He's the only God and the only man with two natures, divine and human. Luther said Christianity does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. Therefore, whenever you're, con you're concerned to think and act about your salvation, you must put away all speculations about the majesty, all thoughts of works and traditions and philosophy, indeed of the law of God itself. And you must run directly to the manger and the mother's womb. Embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms and look at him. Born, nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens and having authority over all things. In this way, you can shake off all terrors and errors as the sun dispels the clouds. It's the very premise. Luther's quote is right out of Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He didn't just go around the block a few times. He invented the block, <laughs> all right? but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's our hope of progression. God walked in our footsteps and so he is fully capable of helping us to walk in his, all right? Fourth is the condition Galatians 4, verse 4, born under the law. Jesus was a Jew, right? So he was born under the law, but he committed no sin. That means in every feast, every Passover, every commandment, Jesus never sinned. Every good thing that he was supposed to do, every opportunity to do good that he had, he did it. And his condition of perfection was necessary for our condition of imperfection to be fixed. <laughs> but since he was born under the law, that meant something. In order for him to fix our problem, he had to take the punishment that our law demanded for our sins, which was death on a cross. He left his position to change our condition. We just read Hebrews 4.15, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.22, one of my favorite verses to display the sinlessness of Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Why would you add that second part? You just said he committed no sin. Isn't that enough? I mean, okay, he's perfect. Neither was there deceit. You know why he said that? Because he knew a few of you little Southern Baptists. He said, well, I, you know, I didn't lie. You know, I didn't lie, you know. I just didn't tell him everything, you know. We're a deceitful crew, aren't we? You know. Do you like this dress, honey? Well, well um, where'd you get that, babe? Where'd you get that dress? I didn't answer your question, but I hate that dress, all right? 
We're, we, we are prone to be deceitful. And 1 Peter 2.22 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't even technically sin. Church, the condition of Christ's coming changes the condition of our going. <laughs> now, these last two that I'm going to give you, numbers five and six of this gospel presentation are about the purpose of Christ's coming. All right. So fifth is the first purpose of Christ's coming. We've looked at the manner, we've looked at the timing and all those things. This is the purpose. And you remember Paul had already given one of the purposes that's really not a purpose. In Galatians 1 verse 4, he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age. So Christ did come to rescue us, right? But that's not all he came to do. I mean, many good friends have and will lay down their lives for another person. We see that in wars, in our police officers, in, in firefighting. You know, people lay down their lives for others. But Christ came to do more than just rescue us. Galatians 4 verse 5 says, to redeem those who were under the law. Now that was a, a word that was used in Jesus' day to describe buying, paying the price of a slave in order to set them free, right? But someone had to make the payment. <laughs> Church, that's salvation, right? Jesus was the payment. His purpose was our redemption. Please don't let the sufferings of this world, the challenges of your current situation, drown out that fact that like mountains were moved heaven was opened for you i know your car broke down i know you're going through marriage problems i know your kids are sick okay i get it i i i don't get everything you're going through but remember this moment in that pain that's the purpose one of the reasons the gospel is so repeated to us he's just trying to remind us of his love that he's poured out for us Christ alone is our only possible redeemer. Well, sixth, and the second purpose of Christ's coming, it wasn't just for redemption, it was for reception. Galatians 4 verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It reminds me of a song Hunter uh, recently wrote called Just Getting Started. He was just getting started. Riken says, it would be enough for God to release us from his slavery from sin slavery, to rescue us from our captivity to the law, and so to redeem us from its curse. But God did not stop there. Once Christ had gained our freedom, he gathered us into his family. He went beyond redemption to adoption, turning slaves into sons. The Galatians had gone from slavery to sonship and back to slavery, but there was still hope. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but researchers say in Paul's day, there were around 60 million slaves of some type in, in the entire Roman Empire, which was a large empire. So slaves could be purchased to be set free, like I mentioned, or they could be purchased to be a slave of another person. <laughs> you could sell your slaves to someone else or sell their debt. If it was an indentured servant, you could sell their debt to someone else. Someone else could pay the debt that that person owed you and then now take that slave for themselves. But Jesus went further than just setting us free. He paid for the slaves. He adopted the slaves. And then he went a step further to treat them as sons of his own. 
All right? When Jesus died and he rose again, he not only paid for our freedom, but he provided us with adoption papers. He made us sons and daughters of the Most High God. We see this right after Jesus arose from the dead. He, went to, he saw the women and he said, go and tell your brothers Jesus is alive. He called them brothers. These disciples, these followers of his that had denied him <laughs> and betrayed him, he called them brothers. And by the way, if we're brothers and sisters of Christ, what does that make us? Sons and daughters of the King. All right. Hmm. Paul highlights the depth of their digression, the hope of their progression, but finally, the excess of their possession, right? They were rescued from slavery, praise God. They were redeemed from the law and punishments of sin, hallelujah. They were even adopted as sons. How could it get any better? Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, we've started a new Bible study on Wednesday nights. By the way, you're all invited on Wednesday nights. At 5.30, we have a good home-cooked meal, a good home-style meal. Usually two, two, two veggies and a meat and some, some bread and, some, and often some uh, homemade, uh, homemade desserts from Miss Betty and others. Miss Amanda, yeah. That's, <laughs> you, gotta, you better get those early. Those go fast, all right? But at 5.30, we eat and fellowship together. And at 6.30, there's ministries for all ages. We come in here. We have a, the adults have a little prayer meeting time for about 30 minutes and then 30 minutes of Bible study. And then 7.30, we're usually out. But we're in a new study. And that study is over a 400-year-old book that was actually written by a guy uh, who was born the year that uh, William Shakespeare died, 1616. And it begins with Romans 8.13. It's all about how to combat sin in our lives. <laughs> and Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. <laughs> Meaning you want to use the law, you want to try to keep the law, and that gets you, that earn your righteousness, it's not going to end well. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And the key verse there is, key uh, phrase there is, by the Spirit. The enabler of the putting to death, the deeds of the body, is the spirit, not the law. Our adoption, listen, here's my point. Our adoption goes beyond a binding legal agreement. A fireman may rescue someone from a burning house, right? Praise God, the hero. But that doesn't mean he takes that person home and cares for them. But if he did, that would be incredible. But then if they took him home, how would he treat that person, right? Well, if God goes beyond, uh, I think of it like this. If you have a roof over your head, that's good. If, if, if you think of Christ providing for your needs. And if you adopt someone, you may bring someone into your home and, and give them access to the things you have, right? But will that adopted family treat you the same as their real children? Will he treat me the same as his other children? And I know that there's some people in here, you feel like you're the other child. You feel like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm here at church. I am a professing Christian, but I'm not one of, I'm not, you know, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm the other kid. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the adopted, left out. You know, I feel 
I feel that way. You feel that way, but that's not the way God feels about you. I want y'all to listen to this. The term for crying, where it says crying out, Abba, Father, that phrase is incredibly affectionate and intimate. I mean, that is, an, that is a very intimate statement that's happening right there. That word for crying is actually, it, it was originally used of a raven's cry, a raven's piercing cry. You know, you can hear it from miles away, right? It figuratively came to mean to cry out loud with an urgent scream using inarticulate shouts that express deep emotion. Reminds me of Romans eight twenty six. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we cry out to him with groanings that, are in, in, that can't even be understood, but he's interceding for us with groanings in his heart that can't even be understood. Do y'all understand that? I mean, y'all have this in a general sense. You look at the world around us and you don't, you may not have a target for your pain, like someone to blame for it, but there's a general sensation about the state of our world and wickedness that says that hurts, you know, like you hurt, your heart hurts. There's a, there's a groaning inside of you. And that's how Christ feels for you. You're not just an adopted, you're just not, you're not just, he didn't just sign your adoption papers. I mean, he, you get, every kid gets everything. Mm. The excess of what we possess is too great to comprehend. And the Galatians were treating God's grace. Mm. With contempt like children, with no concept of its excessive value. I want to end with this. There's a story uh, from the news, an old story of, from November the 20th, 2014. It was uh, titled, Lost Family Heirloom Found in Sewer Thanks to the Tireless Efforts of Sanitation Workers. I think we have a picture of these two heroes right here. There they are, orange suits, right? These are workers Johnny Powell on the left and Victor Vasut on the right. And I don't know if you can see what's in his hand right there. You probably can't, but it's a, it's a valuable diamond and sapphire ring. But it's not just a valuable ring. It's a precious heirloom that had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. So how did it end up in the sewer, in the sanitation system? Well, I'll tell you. The owner's three-year-old son apparently didn't understand its value, and he dropped it in the toilet and flushed it. The article said the mother's, the boy's mother asked him, Where, where's the ring? He said, Mama, I flushed it, in the, it down the toilet. It's gone. It's really, really gone. <laughs> she said, the ground just went out from under my feet. We started watching Finding Nemo with him. And I think that's where he got the whole idea of flushing. He kept saying, Nemo will find the ring, Mama. Nemo will find the ring. <laughs> well, it wasn't Nemo. It was Victor. All right. Uh, the, they even hired a plumber. He couldn't find it. Sanitation workers flushed sewer lines for weeks. And they were about to give up when on November 14th, six weeks after the kid flushed the thing, they found it over 2,600 feet from the house, nine football fields away. The supervisor said, it's a rare thing to find something like this. It's like a needle in a haystack. The article said, after what we assume was a very thorough cleaning, 
The ring is now back where it belongs. One day, the family says it plans to pass the ring down to the boy, who by then will presumably have grown out of his Finding Nemo phase. Let's hope so. Church, who in the world would flush an expensive ring, a family heirloom, down the toilet? Someone who lacks the maturity to understand its excessive value. Now, church, just imagine 30 years go by and the kid gets his inheritance. And as soon as he gets it, he walks over to the toilet and he flushes it again. That's what Paul is likening the Galatians to. A three-year-old, a child who has an excessive inheritance, a father who loves him, (laughs) but in his immaturity, he failed the test. They don't just repeat the grade level, right? They digress, but there's still hope, the hope of the gospel. Friend, follow God's word, but not to earn his favor, to praise his name. Otherwise, you'll be acting like a three-year-old. Would you stand? Father God, we confess to you, though we want to do good, we sometimes get to feeling good about ourselves when we do it. <laughs> we, we actually think that you're going to do us a solid. You're going you're gonna to help us out. If we'll just go to church more, if we'll just do this thing that you, you know, that your Bible talks about, that's going to earn us favor. And by doing that, we literally act like children. We pass right over the grace and make it all about us and our good works. Father God, (laughs) there are depressed people in this room. There are guilty people in this room who are wallowing in their own self-pity because they don't understand this. And not to insult them, but they're acting like children. Father God, we didn't get rid of our bad stuff. You did. And so we need to call on you. I pray that if there's anybody here today that does not know the saving power, the merciful, loving, adopting love of Jesus, they'd cry out to you and say, adopt me. (laughs) I pray you would sign with your faith in Christ, sign together with him, his blood, your faith, eternal life and forgiveness. Call out to him and he'll save you. And I pray that if there's people here who have not yet made the commitment to serve in a local church, Ephesians 4, Corinthians, there's all types of verses about using our gifts through the local church, the bride of Christ. That's who you're coming back for. And I pray that you will find us serving her, not serving the preacher, not serving the church family. Those kids in the back that are being watched and taught right now aren't the ones being served. Your name, Jesus, is being served by our efforts to teach and care, whether it's changing a baby's diaper or cutting the grass out front. Lord, we want to serve you. And I pray you'd bring people into this church that you know we need to help meet the needs that are there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.